This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Friday, November 17th. On the pod today, the UN says Gaza residents are at imminent risk of starvation. Medical care in the north has collapsed. Israel says it will allow some supplies in as its military could be pushing further south. We'll ask the head of the UN Relief Agency for Palestinians about their stalled aid efforts just ahead. And with focus shifting to the Middle East, where does Ukraine's fight against Russia stand? We'll speak to former Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko. Plus, another blow to the Liberal government's environmental policy. Two court decisions in five weeks deem parts of it unconstitutional. The Power Panel weighs in on that. We begin in Gaza, where humanitarian efforts are stalled. The United Nations says it needs more fuel to send aid in. Israel, meanwhile, is under growing international pressure over the human cost of its war on Hamas. Here is Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. First of all, any civilian death is a tragedy. And we shouldn't have any, because we're doing everything we can to get the civilians out of harm's way, while Hamas is doing everything to keep them in harm's way. We'll try to finish that job with minimal civilian casualties. That's what we're trying to do, minimal civilian casualties. But unfortunately, we're not successful. The CBC's Ellen Morrow joins us now from Jerusalem. So, Ellen, there there are more signs that Israel's military campaign is pushing further further south into southern Gaza. What are you hearing about that? Well, we had a few updates from the Israel Defense Forces tonight, David. First, just to talk about what we've been talking about the past few days, the Al-Shifa Hospital. Uh, Israeli troops remain there, they say, uh, in that facility. They said tonight they have found more uh, underground infrastructure. That's yesterday. That's after yesterday when they said they found an operational tunnel shaft uh, and weapons, all of that coming from the Israel Defense Forces. But in terms of the vast uh, underground Hamas headquarters that Israel Israel uh, says exists at al-Shifa. There hasn't been public evidence of that uh, yet, but Israel has pushed back on that uh, criticism, saying troops are still there searching. Also still there are the hundreds of patients we've been talking about who are in dire humanitarian circumstances. Israel said that it has found evidence related to the hostages at al-Shifa, a laptop with photos and videos of some of the hostages on it. Uh, Also on the hostage part of this story, David, there was a grim video that came out uh, tonight of an elderly man believed to be a hostage breathing his last breath. That video released by Hamas. We're not showing that video. Uh, In the past, Israel has called videos like this psychological warfare. Now, looking at the south and this ground offensive, uh, Israel has been dropping leaflets in parts of the south of Gaza telling people to move. And you'll recall they did that in the north at the start of the war and hundreds of thousands of people moved from the north to the south and now some of those people are again getting leaflets telling them to move again. That's causing so much concern for those people who say they don't have anywhere to go. Shelters are completely uh, overrun in the south of Gaza. There's overcrowded tent cities and that could signal, David, an expansion of this operation into the south of Gaza. Now there have been airstrikes in the south 
south of Gaza throughout the war. The ground offensive has been concentrated in the north. These leaflets being dropped uh, is signaling that perhaps there could be some kind of expansion. Right, but Ellen, as you say, uh, the shelters and the facilities the relief agencies have set up are, are overcrowded. There's also a fuel shortage inside Gaza. Some movement with Israel bending a little bit on fuel deliveries to Gaza. What has it agreed to do? Well, Israel's war cabinet said today it will allow two fuel trucks a day into Gaza. Now, that would be the first time that there has been uh, a deal for there to be a regular delivery of fuel uh, into Gaza. But Israel says it's a very minimal amount. Aid agencies describe it as a very minimal amount, between 2 to 4% of what would be going into Gaza before the war. But Israel says it's worried that Hamas will get the fuel. So that's what we're hearing on the fuel. We did have another briefing later on in the day from the Israeli agency that deals with aid going into Gaza and it was a tone that we haven't really heard before. An official there saying that there won't be any limit on the fuel going into Gaza, that whatever the UN needs, Israel will allow to go in. Will allow to go in. That official did not refer to fuel specifically, but certainly aid agencies have been pleading for more uh, aid to go in generally. We'll have to obviously wait and see if that happens, but it comes after more dire warnings about the humanitarian situation in Gaza. The World Food Program saying civilians are at risk of immediate starvation. The World Health Organization worry, uh, warning about the spread of disease with people living in these overcrowded conditions. All right, Ellen, thanks very much. That's the CBC's Ellen Morrow in Jerusalem. So as Ellen mentioned, aid groups have been pleading for more supplies and fuel, saying their operations may have to end without the necessary resources. Julia Tuma is the Director of Communications for the UN agency that oversees the Palestinian territories, and we've reached her in Amman, Jordan. Juliet, it's good to speak with you again. Thank you, David. When we spoke, I believe it was on, on Monday, you said UNRWA was at risk of stopping its operations in Gaza. Yesterday, the Commissioner General of your organization, Philippe Lazzarini, said there is a risk of the agency shutting down all of its humanitarian work. Where are we now at the end of this week? Well, very sadly, uh, today, uh, David, uh, we reached uh, that point. We could not uh, resume our humanitarian operations we could not even go to pick up those uh, very precious trucks of humanitarian assistance from the borders with uh, Egypt. There is also a communications blackout across the Gaza Strip, also because the telecommunications company that normally provides these services has itself run out of fuel. So you, you say you've stopped. Does this mean a, a permanent stop? Is this a temporary pause? Is there a window where you see things uh, being able to resume? Uh, wh where are they? Until we get uh, the fuel that we need and until telecommunications uh, networks are resumed, uh, only then are we able to continue to deliver humanitarian assistance. Have you gotten any sense of uh, if that will happen or when that might happen? I know fuel has been a sticking point since the very beginning of this conflict, and you were given some fuel just to fuel your delivery trucks, I believe, this week, uh, but not to fuel your operation. So is there any hope of that happening? There's always hope. There's always hope. Fuel has been used as a weapon of war in Gaza, and it should never have been the case. And we, the largest UN agency and the largest humanitarian organization in the Gaza Strip should never be pushed in the corner like we are now.
or be begging for fuel. Should never have happened. Mr. Lazzarini uh, said, uh, I believe there is a deliberate attempt to strangle our operation and paralyze the UNRWA operation. Is he speaking specifically about Israel there, Juliet? We've been facing a multitude of restrictions and challenges since the beginning of this war. It took, for example, two weeks to send the first truck of humanitarian assistance, a very, very tight siege, ongoing bombardments and airstrikes, then limitations on fuel. Once we finally got it, it was conditional only for UNRWA to be able to bring in the trucks and then do what with it? We have to distribute the aid that we bring in. So we faced multiple, we continue to face multiple challenges that hamper the humanitarian operation in the Gaza Strip. So I think the last time we spoke, there were about 800,000 people uh, taking refuge in UNRWA shelters. What happens to them? now that uh, you don't have the fuel and the communications capacity to, to continue your operations? Well, their situation is very, very desperate. You see, they have come early on to the UNRWA facilities in search of safety and in search of protection and also in search of assistance because these um, displaced families have left their homes almost with nothing on them. So. They de depend almost entirely on UNRWA and the assistance that we deliver. And people continue to come into our shelters in search of safety and protection given the ongoing war. But, but do they have food now? Do they have any kind of electricity, proper sanitation? We, when last we spoke, we talked about the sheer number of people sharing a very tiny number of toilets. What happens with all of those sort of facilities and amenities? Yeah, that's right. Already two weeks ago, when our Commissioner General, when he visited Gaza, he went to one of those shelters and already little kids were coming to him asking for a piece of bread and a sip of water. And that was two weeks ago, when we were still able to deliver assistance. So already the situation was very, very dire back then. Imagine how it is now, when there's no fuel, when there's no humanitarian assistance and ongoing bombardments and ongoing siege. So, so when, when we spoke on Monday, I believe it was you said uh, 102 of your colleagues uh, had been killed in the bombardment. Um, clearly, a communications blackout uh, is an enormous challenge for an organization like yours. Do you have any way of knowing what's happening with your people inside Gaza right now? Not today, David, not today. We have lost communications with the vast majority of our staff. And since we've last spoken, the um, number of colleagues killed is now 103 colleagues. We have also, before this blackout, we have uh, a number of colleagues who were unaccounted for. So we worry that, in fact, this number is much higher that the number of colleagues at UNRWA killed is much higher. We worry that maybe some of them are stuck under the rubble. Um, you were already operating at a very reduced capacity and with a very threadbare ability to deliver uh, aid compared to what you normally do uh, outside of wartime. Um, 
what happens if, if your capacity to work isn't restored in, say, 24 hours, 48 hours from now? Well, first of all, it has to be restored. So fuel needs to flow into Gaza for UNRWA and other humanitarian organizations as soon as possible and without any conditions so that we are able to continue to deliver humanitarian assistance so that bakeries are able to function, so that hospitals, medical facilities, whatever is left of them, are able to cater to the wounded and to the sick, so that the water flows again. Right now, David, 70%, 70% of people in Gaza do not have clean drinking water. Julia Tuma, Director of Communications with UNRWA, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. A federal court judge has knocked down a key part of the government's single-use plastics ban as unreasonable and unconstitutional. Justin Trudeau has been found to have broken the Constitution uh, with his unscientific plastics ban. Very surprised by, by, by the, the, the reaction of, uh, of, of the federal court uh, because it goes against um, what, what the Canadian public is asking us. It's go to, it goes against what we've seen municipalities uh, across the country start, started doing. And it goes against what, what science is telling us about the impacts of plastics on, on our on environment, but also on, on human health. Okay, I'm not sure they broke the Constitution, but Minister Gilbo says the government will very likely appeal the decision. But where has this latest blow left the Liberals' environmental policy? The Power Panel's back on that. Susan Marie, Nigan, and Emily. Uh, Nigan, you know, the plastic ban, uh, probably going to the Supreme Court. There was a setback on the Impact Assessment Agency, the carve-out on home heating oil, and and a fraying, if you look at public opinion, uh, of where people are on a lot of the Liberals' uh, climate policy. And the consensus was pretty solid just a few years ago. Where are they right now? Uh, well, I mean, the fact is it, it, people who are debating whether climate change exists are carrying some of the measure of the day, and that's where some of the doubt comes in. And, you know, the challenge with this decision around constitutionality uh, really gets to the heart of whether the government can impose a, what is a, ultimately a provincial uh, legislation because it's, pro, it's provincial legislation when it comes to environment and natural resources. And the real debate is around toxicity, around plastic, but that's a pretty closed issue after the UN meeting on plastics last year in June. I, I mean, I don't know where people are coming from when they talk about science. I mean, the world scientists have talked about uh, the fact that single-use plastics are a problem, they are toxic, and they don't uh, break down over years and and affect humans just in the way in which water works, the way in which ecology works, or the way in which the air works. Um, But, you know, the real real little bit about this this decision is that the judge wasn't able to turn over S5, uh, the single-use plastics, or the right to the environment bill that the the Trudeau Liberals passed. And and that's really interesting because the fact that you can't really... uh, The big ticket part of that bill is that people have a right to an environmental consideration. It's a human right. And so the fact that, that the judge wasn't able to turn that down, I think that would be a bigger issue for the Constitution than deciding who can decide whether single use plastics exist.
Right. So, Marie, th- th- this is happening. Uh, you know, there is a setback in the impact agency. You see people like Daniel Smith claiming victory because, you know, for, I think it was former Premier Jason Kenney who was, who was part of a lot of these challenges. And now you've got polls saying 70% of Canadians say the carbon tax should be taken off all home heating. Um, the Liberals are really up against it on a signature core value for them. I think... It's the accumulation of these rulings, um, well, and the, the carve-out in the carbon tax, which they didn't help themselves with that one, um, but they're targeted rulings, right? So on, on C69, on um, environmental impact evaluation, it's a section of the bill. Yep. It was a decision, not a ruling, um, right. of, of the designated list of projects that um, the federal government can't necessarily impose his uh, impact evaluation, environmental impact evaluation. Sorry, I'm thinking about it in French. Um, on plastics... It's that the list was too broad. It's not yeah. saying that they can't ban plastic at all, or to Nigan's point, that S5 is invalid. But it still weakens the environmental framework by sort of chipping at it bit by bit. To your point, it doesn't really help the public have confidence that either it is constitutional or effective or the right way to do it. Um, and it also emboldens province like Saskatchewan, who has decided with a bill that they will not collect the carbon tax on yeah. natural gas <coughs> anymore. Yeah, on last night. <clears throat> yeah. Um, or Alberta, who is saying we're really happy about this plastics ban ruling. Uh, it, it emboldens provinces to keep resisting. And I think the government, because of this resistance, political and or um, of, of uh, active, not active, sorry, industries, because of this resistance, the government has sort of tried to force climate action with banning plastics, C69, um, the carbon tax, which, by the way, that one was deemed constitutional. And by trying to force this action, the government has sometimes been told, you're going too far. So I think they're sort of trying to figure out how how they can force action. But the fact that it keeps being a little bit, in each case, um, struck down or criticized by the courts is, is, is... is not helping the framework stay intact. But, but, but Susan, now as a sort of regroup and reset and push ahead to try mm-hmm. to salvage uh, something they still believe in, I mean, the rage around the end of plastic straws that was out there <laughs> and the end of plastic bags, um, those things are easier to do from a position of political strength early in a mandate, and they're not in that kind of a situation any longer. Yeah, that, it goes to the point I was making sort of earlier. Is This is one of those ones, there's a lot of stuff that they're doing on climate that is way above people's heads and they don't understand and, you know, it doesn't touch them. You know, how, how can a Canadian affect an emissions target? But they can, you know, they see in their hands the plastic bags and, right. and the straws. So, so uh, for all the people who protested against, there were a lot of people who were happy that this was going mm-hmm. on too. It should be said that we, this is something Absolutely. concrete that we can Absolutely. do. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, it, Marie is right, it's the cumulative effect of all of this. It's the idea that... I, I like the, the two words that were chosen in, in the ruling, unconsti- unreasonable and unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. You go to the unreasonable part, this is a government that kept, kept saying it has science on its side. And this court mm-hmm. said, science is not on your side. Mm. You know? And then on the unconstitutional, it's fitting with, I saw the interview last night with with the Saskatchewan minister, too, willing to go to jail, I guess. <laughs> if, uh, yeah, that, that's, that, that's a whole other thing. I, I yeah. don't know how they can change the federal law. Uh, I, I, you know. I don't can't. either. Yeah. No, I, but I, it, it's of a theme we are seeing mm-hmm. now, which is we're going to do what we want, and it's, it's coming close to not acknowledging the government's right to govern. Um, mm. uh, the federal government, you know, the, the, you know, whether it's they have no right to come in and do housing announcements, mm-hmm. you know, all of this is the same 
song from the provinces. I'd say it's already there. Yeah, the, the, yeah. Not recognize the government's right to govern. Right. So, so Marie, uh, uh, sorry, Emily, excuse me. Um, they, they, a lot of the provinces who are fighting back on on the policies the government is trying to do point to Quebec and say, don't sign deals with our cities to do housing. We want a deal like Quebec, which also matched the money uh, dollar for <laughs> yeah. dollar, which the other provinces have not yet done. Uh, but but they're also uh, fighting them now on on, on climate policy. And Pierre Polyev says he wants the next election to be a carbon tax election. Um, is there enough to sustain that sort of attitude between now and 2025? And how would that play in a province like Quebec, uh, where attitudes on, on climate are, are sharply different than they are, say, in the conservative power base of, of Alberta and Saskatchewan? Uh, to the Quebec part of your question, uh, it really goes uh, above our head right now the carbon tax uh we you know we have our own right. uh the plastic ban uh is something that you know has been done by our local elected officials as well we didn't wait for a federal law to to act on that um and uh the environmental policy piece is very much understood here as something that is a provincial matter and that the rest of canada is backward on is you know the common understanding of it regardless of not that's fair uh, and so uh, that's not a way for Pierre to be heard here, um, generally speaking. However, uh, in terms of your other, the other part of the question, is that the script that Pierre can can rely on between now and 2025? There are so many things that can happen between now and, mm. and 2025. I'm not sure that's the that we, we can predict that. What we can predict, though, is that this uh, this idea that you know Canada's broken and that the gov- the federal government is not doing what it's supposed to do that it's stifling uh, people's rights that's the broader narrative that they're at and as Susan mm. was saying it's about the environment it's about uh, housing it's about pretty much everything under the sun uh, because it's such a general line that it can be applied onto any issue and so uh, if they stay with that message then any kind of things that pops up they can just right. The you know so I think that's more the umbrella message that 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 is uh, likely to stick around. Yeah, and again, it's a very versatile message, right? Especially when you have premiers who would like you to be the prime minister who are willing to take up that fight at their level and, and create tension with the, with the federal government. Uh, I just want to address one thing I was just talked about just a minute ago in terms of the science. I mean, I mean, I encourage anybody, please look, go to the Plastics Forum at the United Nations, June 8th to 10th last year, June 2022. I mean, single-use plastics, the science is all there. Um, and, of course, while the bill that the government is, po- is proposing perhaps perhaps was an overstretch, um, it's something that is trying to deal with a issue that's happening nationally. And the fact is that the provinces aren't doing it. And why would they be trusted? I mean, when you offer for funding to provinces or incentives to provinces to be able to address an issue such as this around either plastics or the environment or even housing, um, then suddenly they take the money that they're offered and then fire checks out to their individual uh, constituents. And and why would you trust provinces? Because even when Justin Trudeau is on the side of the provinces, I mean, have we all forgotten that he bought a pipeline? And... (laughs) The, 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 the environmentalists haven't. 
I mean, have we forgotten that Justin Trudeau on one side was thought as the enemy of the environment only at the very beginning, I mean, six, seven, eight years ago, before the pandemic anyways, which feels so long ago, but that Justin Trudeau was on the side of industry, particularly in Alberta and uh, in the issue of pipelines and trying to get the economy moving when it came to natural resources and so on and so forth. I mean, so it's really just damned if you do, damned if you don't. And we're certainly in an environment that's full of rancor, but I just don't think the provinces have any right to be trusted uh, when you keep offering them incentives and they just send checks to their individual constituents or tax breaks or so on. Right. Uh, I would say the, the the record of the government is mixed on pipelines. If you're an advocate for pipelines, like yes on TMX, but then like Northern Gateway and these other things. Uh, but but to Nigan's points on provinces, like at Marie here in Ontario, the the uh, four government very critical of carbon pricing, complaining about the the hardship it's putting on people. They scrapped the cap-and-trade system that exists yes. in Emily's uh, <laughs> Quebec right now, yes. uh, where they're tied in with the California markets, where there would have been none of this. I mean, there will happen. be in a few years. I, I think yeah. Quebec will be looped into the federal tax at some point because it's not. we won't eternally necessarily be matching the federal system. Right. But, yes, this would not be a problem for Doug Ford had, had they not exited the, the, the bourse, I forget how it's called in English, what, my cap English tonight, cap and trade. the <laughs> cap and trade. Your English is better uh, than my French, so oh it's God. all good. The, the, if they had not exited the cap and trade, but to your point also on um, how does this, I guess, to rephrase your question, how does this help Pierre Poliev going into the election, or is this a good um, is this talking point? Yeah. yeah, I think it's also a question of, if it's, if it's framed as a question of cost, and that's how he's framed the carbon tax, and I think that's why you see those um, poll numbers, I think that is, um, yes, efficient, and that, yes, could help him and hurt the liberals. I don't know that plastic fits in that so much. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a cost for industries, of course, to to renege uh, plastic, but it, I don't know if it's a cost to people to buy a, a metal straw. And I'm from Quebec, and like yep. Emilie, I see this opposition to banning plastics, and I'm a little... Yeah, I'm not going it. back to plastic bags. I got, yeah. I got enough. Uh, but uh, I think if they if they leave it as a cost issue yeah. and the economy stays as it is, um, yeah, it definitely is is a problem for the liberals. All right, Susan, we're just about out of time. Quick final thoughts from you about 20 seconds. That's oh. what you got. The liberals are saying, you know, maybe bravado, they want a carbon tax election. They'd be very yeah. happy with one. So we'll see where things are in a year or two years from now, but they believe they've won on that issue before and they can do it again. Mm. All right. Well, we'll Skeptical, we'll, but we'll, we'll talk we'll, about it another day. All right, we'll see you on that one. Maybe we'll talk about that next Friday. All right, gang, uh, have a great weekend. Thanks to the Friday Power Panel, Emily, Nicola, Nigan Sinclair, Marie Vastel, and Susan Delacour. Thanks, gang. Russia's war on Ukraine is at day 632. Canada's defense minister says that even with war in the Middle East, Canada has not forgotten about Ukraine. That debate and that discussion is, is perfectly healthy and, 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 and fine, but I've seen no abatement of, of the United States' commitment nor Canada's commitment or among our allies to continuing to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. A Ukrainian brigade published footage Thursday showing its fighters capturing Russian trenches near Bakhmut, one of the bloodiest theaters of this war. Ukraine launched a counteroffensive in June aimed at retaking occupied land in the country's south and east, including Bakhmut. But progress has been slow. The status of the war is a big topic at this year's Halifax International Security Forum, and that's where we've reached our next guest. Petro Poroshenko is the former president of Ukraine. Mr. Poroshenko, it's good to speak with you again. Thank you very much indeed for the invitation, and thank you for the hospitality in Halifax. 
uh, when, when we spoke about a year ago when you were at this conference, the eyes of the world were squarely on the conflict between Ukraine and, and Russia after Russia's invasion of your country. But now the world is paying increasing attention to what's happening between Israel and Hamas. Are, are you concerned that the security focus of a lot of the Western allies are, are shifting towards the Middle East and away from what's happening in Ukraine? No, because the center, the reason of this war, both in Gaza Strip in Israel and in uh, uh, Ukraine, a massive invasion is the same. And the center of this is Russia, and the initiator of this is Putin. And uh, we have uh, lots of evidence, but uh, the Hamas terrorist was trained by the Wagner instructor, which was returned back from Ukraine where they're killing civilians and participate in the disastrous act of terrorism. At the same time, the whole world should understand that when we have a victory of uh, uh, Ukraine on Russia war, when we threw Russia away and deputinize Russia, that will definitely finish the war in Israel, the occupied territory in Transnistria, in Georgia, make free Belarus, and we bring a huge geopolitical changes in the world. It's a uh, more than 600 days since uh, Vladimir Putin I- invaded your country. Um, it has required a lot of aid and support from Western countries, and there seems to be a change happening in the United States where the, the next bit of legislation to get some key U.S. aid I- is stuck in Congress. How concerned are you about uh, what appears to be a, a shift, a change in attitudes in the U.S. House of Representatives on this? I stay optimistic and have an opportunity to speak with the uh, senators and congressmen, bipartisan. They are full of decisiveness to uh, vote and support of Ukraine and to continue this support. And with that situation, we do not accept that the considerably small group of the populists can uh, ruin the bipartisan support, a vast majority of the American people and American Congress. That's why I'm optimistic. But I cannot accept that the ocean of the global support of Ukraine can narrow to the river and then to the stream and this bring to their total defeat of the world. Because, again, we're fighting not only for our sovereignty and territorial integrity. We're fighting for their freedom, for democracy, and assisting Ukraine, all the free world, all the NATO member states, investing in your own security, investing in your own uh, military defense industry. And with that situation, there is no gray zone. This is like on bicycle. You can either go or fall. And this is impossible to be to stay in the middle because you can either together with Putin and take responsibility on Bucha crimes, on Mariupol crimes, on the dozens of thousands of Ukrainian civilians which Putin killed, or to be on the uh, light side on democracy and freedom and do your best to bring us to our common victory, because that would not be just a victory for Ukraine, that would be the victory of the whole free world. And I have no doubt that united by values, people in 
US, in Canada, in Europe, in the whole world, definitely do their best to bring us to this victory. Ukraine, in any case, pays, pays the biggest price for that. The lives of mm -hmm. our soldiers, the lives of our people. No, oh, there's no question there. Um, and I know you say you remain optimistic that a small group of populists in the Congress can't tie this up, but that small group has has caused a lot of challenges uh, in the United States uh, in, in the last couple of weeks. We're seeing some public opinion polling, showing some softening of support. So when you speak to congressmen and senators in the U.S., what, what kind of a reassurance uh, are they able to give you that they can get this done and get this done fast? Again, as my friend, the Estonian prime minister, says that, uh, uh, okay, this is a democracy. Hmm. And this is the price for the democracy this discussion and we should be uh, should deliver the arguments which uh, bring to the decision but my question is does democracy makes us weaker this is exactly what putin expect hmm. or democracy makes us stronger and the people who were elected the uh, representative who were elected by the people of us i have no doubt which is united by values understand that they are voting uh, supporting Ukraine, that they are voting supporting U.S. Or are the alternative, they support Russia. We definitely need weapons, but this is weapons supply, supply by U.S., by Canada, would be replaced and money stay in the country. Right. And undoubtedly we pay higher price because... I am on the front line every single week. I meet with the soldiers and I lost my friends. I lost my uh, party team. And this is a disaster to be on the funeral every single week. Mm. And with that situation, I all the time, when I'm in US, when I'm in Canada, when I'm in Europe, feeling the strong shoulder of our partner. And I have no doubt that we will definitely win this war together. I, I wonder, if, sir, if I could get your sense of where the war is right now, your sense of the status of this conflict. Because, as I said, over 600 days, uh, the counterattack was able to capture back a lot of the territory. But Russia has entrenched and set up defensive positions, and the front line has gotten a bit static. I, I mean, what's your sense of where this conflict is right now and, and the chances of, of Ukraine making further breakthroughs? Look, this is not a Hollywood film, Hollywood movie, right. where the whole world sitting with the popcorn and expecting the immediate results uh, as in the within two hours. We have uh, every single day very severe fighting, every single day one, almost 1,000 of Russian orcs, Russian terrorists are killed several uh, dozens of their tank and personal carriers is destroyed. And with this situation, I have absolutely confident that every single day we have a certain positive movement. You will see the situation in the Black Sea when we renew uh, the uh, grain corridor, save the world from the hunger and move uh, Russian Navy from the Crimea port to the Novorossiysk affair because Russia cannot protect the Navy. We have a 
certain success of the left bank of the Kherson region, where three-hour brigade of the Marine yesterday expanded our Plotsdam on the left bank. We have a severe fighting, not given any tiny chance for Russia to have a progress in Avdiivka, in Marienka, in Vodyane, in Ugledar. And uh, with this situation, we do not have a significant results in counteroffensive. But for that, as uh, General Zaluzhny said, as Ukrainians said, we need uh, very special and technological things for demining. We need a very special things for the radio electronic warfare system, and we create already by ourselves the effective things against Russian operative tactical drones and uh, Russian artillery. We need a counter battery to make an effective our an efficient our artillery, and at the end of the day, we need a air force and F-16, because no NATO strategy can exist uh, for the offensive operation without the uh, Air Force. And we do a miracle for more than 630 days. We stop Russian army, we make it free from Russian occupation, more than 10% of the occupied territory, and we definitely have a certain success against second army in the world. So we trans transformed Russian army from second army in the world to second army in Ukraine. And this is a good transformation. But please, democracy means responsibility. And this is our common war. And let's keep unity, be together, believe in our victory, and make it free from the Russian occupants, uh, Ukrainian soil, an open door for Ukraine in NATO, because this is the question for the sustainable security situation on the continent and in the world. Petro Poroshenko, former president of Ukraine, it's always good to speak with you. Thanks for joining us uh, again today, sir. Thank you. David, thank you very much indeed. It's a break week for the House of Commons, which means cabinet ministers and party leaders are spread out right across the country, laying out their messages and their priorities in the run-up to Tuesday's fall economic statement. It's a hard balance to strike, um, having, making the necessary investments on one hand, supporting Canadians as we need to do, and at the same time being fiscally responsible. One, we want the Prime Minister to cancel his plans to quadruple the carbon tax. Two, we want the Prime Minister to announce a plan to balance the budget to bring down interest rates and inflation. And three, we want the Prime Minister to adopt my common sense plan to build homes and not bureaucracy. We want to make sure that the fall economic statement presented by the government focuses on two things, housing and groceries. Okay, so we've got about 20 sitting days left before Christmas, so it's time to check the pulse of Canadian politics. I'm joined, as always, on Fridays by Greg McEachern, former Liberal Ministerial Staffer and now with Can Strategies, Melanie Richet, former Director of Communications for the NDP and now Senior Consultant with Ernst Cliff Strategies, and Fred Delory, former Conservative Campaign Manager and Partner at North Star Public Affairs. All right, happy Friday, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, Greg, let's just start with a little bit about the Fez, as they call it here in Ottawa, the fall economic statement. How does Christian Freeland strike that? That balance, she says, is so hard to strike. 
Well, I think I'd, I'd try to meet what the leader of the opposition wants. I think they were going to call on building more bureaucracy. And so I'm sure they're changing <laughs> things over the weekend, uh, working really hard on that. I, you know, it is the same balance that they've, they've had to do for a while. Um, we put a lot of emphasis on the FES. I think that's because of the pandemic. Um, in right. one, in, you know, I think in one year it actually replaced the budget, but it's not a budget. Um, we're going to see what people want. Uh, it's, it's no secret it's going to be around housing to a lesser extent around affordability. Sometimes that er those two areas bleed back and forth. Um, I think they've given us some breadcrumbs around competition mm -hmm. uh, and, and the grocery chains. I'd be watching for that. And this government has a really good relationship with the munici municipalities, with FCM. Um, they need big cities for political support. Sure yeah. um, what does that mean? Does that mean something around short-term rentals? Those would be the kind of the details but the big thing is obviously going to be on housing. Mel, Mel what, are you, what are you expecting? Yeah, um, you know, there's been a theme here on this panel for a few weeks now that we keep saying that the government um, has been unable to get ahead of stuff, has been unable to get ahead of affordability measures like housing, like grocery prices, and like home heating. I think um, an opportunity for them in um, the economic statement is to show that they get it a little bit, to recognize that um, they haven't answered affor affordability um, worries, excuse me, worries as much as they, they should have. Um, and, and while it's not a budget, you can't do everything that you could in a budget the signaling of understanding that folks are having a hard time and starting to talk about a plan to introduce measures to help folks will, mm -hmm. I think, be well received by uh, both New Democrats but also just regular people watching at home. Fred, uh, what are your expectations for Tuesday? I expect we're going to see something that we'll not be talking about a few days later when they forget about it, because that seems to be the consistent <laughs> message of this Liberal government you for the cynic. last year. <laughs> Look, I... Well, you're uh, back I, on Friday, so we're going to have to talk about it then. Well, we'll see if we even are by then, four days, three days after, because this is a government, like, they, when they come out with a budget, they come out with a big, and I know it's not a budget, but they come out with these big things, and they, they brand it, they put a name on it, they talk about it for a few days, and then they seem to forget about it, and they go back into uh, this, this weird stasis. Um, you know, you know, Mr. Polyev's going to hammer on his issues on carbon tax and affordability. That's what he's going to want to see. And I, I think they're going to try to do affordability and inflation somehow. And we'll, you know, at the end of the day, we'll see what's there and we'll see how long we actually talk about it. Okay, we will talk about this next Friday to see if people are still talking <laughs> yeah. about it by next Friday. So book that, uh, folks, it's going to happen. Uh, and, and look, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about the fall economic statement in the segment, but I want to kind of go through your picks quickly. Mm -hmm. and, and Mel, I want to start with yours because you're kind of highlighting something that we will probably see on display on Tuesday, and, and it goes back to the clip we played of Jagmeet Singh on the top on housing and groceries. What do you got for us? Yeah, so um, folks will remember that the first thing that the government put forward in this sitting was a bill um, that they called uh, affordable homes and grocery prices. That really hasn't gone anywhere. Um, I thought uh, that was a good moment this week for the NDP because they saw the fact that the Conservatives were continuing debate on this and the Liberals really wanted to get this passed and get this done. Mm -hmm. So they saw it as an opportunity to leverage um, what they wanted changed in this bill in their conversations with the Liberals. And, and from what we can tell um, in, in a few news reports today is that it seems like they've been able to get some amendments passed that they are happier with and they're going to help the, the government pass this bill. So I thought it was a good proof of showing that um, 
there's, you know, New Democrats are still working with liberals to get stuff done for people, but also that they're being strategic in how they do that right. and using these opportunities to push the government a little bit further than the government was willing to go. Greg, it seems to be the pattern that the liberals put out a piece of legislation and then the NDP leverage it up a little <laughs> bit and that's how it goes through, right? Like we saw that in the pandemic and we're kind of seeing it now, right? Yeah, and, and to build on Mel's point, I one of the things I'm, again, like I'm watching for in the, in, in the FES is whether or not that's reflected. Is, is, it, is it that bill that's going to be amended or is there going to be something new? Right. Remember that bill was to address uh, some of the announcements that um, Sean Fraser has been making, but also it was in response to when the Competition Bureau looked into the grocery chains, they felt that they didn't have enough teeth, that they couldn't get uh, the information that they needed. So um, I think, again, something really interesting to watch, that is the government trying to show that they're meeting what people want. To what Fred said earlier, you're absolutely right about the, the fact that they seem to move on quickly. Yeah. What they were supposed to do out of the London Summer Caucus was stay on housing, and they seem to be staying on housing. Yeah, uh, they have had a more consistent focus on it. But Fred, what's your reaction to the, the housing and grocery coalition coming together <laughs> with the deal on, on this legislation? Well, it's Christmas season, and I feel like I'm watching a Hallmark <laughs> movie here, where you know, in the fall we have the Liberals and NDP put in two separate bills, and two months later they finally get together and have a, a, a bill. You know, it's, it's been playing out in front of us. This is a, a, you know, the supply and confidence agreement. It's not a coalition, but it is. And the only way this, any of these bills were going to pass by the Liberals is with the NDP support. So we were going to get to this point eventually. Mm. It just took two months. I don't know why they didn't try to bang something out earlier. Okay, so Greg, Fred is right. It is, uh, we're getting into the Christmas season. And you wanted to talk about, I guess, uh, a new present that has been unwrapped uh, by the government of Canada this week. And not just because a lot of those um, Christmas movies are filmed here in Ottawa. <laughs> um, but I thought it was really interesting to note this week that the Prime Minister of Canada, and that's not Justin Trudeau, that's all Prime Ministers of Canada, will now have a new plane. You've probably been on that plane. The old one, yes. The old one, and uh, it was not uh, in great shape. There was a two-day delay in India uh, earlier this fall. There's been other times where it's had to return to airports because of problems. I'm told that uh, you, have to, you had to string like uh, power cords down the aisles, things like that. And I remember in uh, early 2018... Uh, I just have to stop for a second. These pictures we're showing, that's the new plane. <laughs> I have never <laughs> flown anything <laughs> resembling that comfort. Sorry, continue your no, point, Greg. No. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, early 2018, uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau did a speech at the Ronald Reagan uh, Museum in California, and there's a decommissioned uh, Air Force One there. And I'm told the Prime Minister was looking at it and realizing that Ronald Reagan had better communications access in the yeah. early 80s than the Prime Minister of Canada did in 2018. What I like about this is that we didn't do our usual Canadian pearl clutching, I can't believe we spent money. I feel like I'm going to wake up one day to a story that 24 Sussex has tumbled down the hill into the river <laughs> because we can't seem to decide on that. And I, I really hope that, that you know, and, and again, uh, in, in, I guess in terms of the, the Christmas season, that we start to look at, you know, whether it's Stornoway or 24 Sussex or the plane, that this is for our leaders and not for our partisan leaders. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Mel, uh, you know, look, I, it is a great privilege to fly on the Prime Minister's plane. I've gotten to do it. I say about a dozen times uh, since I've been in Ottawa. It is not a luxury. Uh, that plane, I think Brian Mulroney bought those used. You know, they're kind of that old. Uh, you know, and, and uh, there's, there's not parts available for them anymore. That's part yeah, of the problem. Th th there's no TV screens. There's no plugs. There's no anything. It's uh, and they take forever and they break down all the time. But but 
new. Uh, these are used, I think, as well. They're, they're about they're, uh, eight years old. Yeah, and they're, I think they're, they're new yeah. to Canada. Yeah. But but Mel, it wasn't the usual sort of rancor, as Greg points out, which is kind of surprising. Yeah. Maybe we can have nice things. <laughs> <laughs> totally, maybe we can. Um, I think that's exactly it. It's nice to see a story that's like, oh, there's nothing to see here. Of course, the prime minister should have a safe and reliable uh, aircraft to travel to the events that he needs to go to. Um, and I think that's a good point to tie it to 24 Sussex, to Stornoway. Um, if we want our leaders to be seen as serious, I think we need to make sure that they have stuff that is reliable. Um, so glad that he has uh, this new plane. And to your point, I think it's important to stress that it's not uh, for our partisan leaders, but it's for our prime ministers. Um, so I think that that's yeah. a good thing that this was scandal-free this week. A, a senior member of the Prime Minister's staff used to joke when we go on these trips that the plane was vintage. And Canada <laughs> was showing up like hipsters, right? People with, with turntables. But Fred, not even, not even a peep from the Conservatives. I mean, I guess when you're 14 points up in the polls and you might get to fly this. Those thing. are yeah. our yeah. planes. Those those are planes. We've got eyes on those planes in a year or two. Those are, you know, Mr. Polyev's going to be flying in those and saying, like, please fix 24 Sussex. Um, but at the end of the day, it's really about, I think, discipline. It's lazy going after these issues because they're not, they don't votes when you do it. You make That's it a headline, point. it yeah. doesn't matter. Polyev and the Conservatives are hammering on issues that actually resonate, and that's why we're seeing the 14-point lead in the polls, wherever they are. It's because they have a message that's consistent, and really, uh, everyone on, every member of the team is singing from the same book, and that's why it's working well for them. Hitting on affordability, carbon tax, all these other issues. Once you go offside and start talking about this stuff, you, you're, you're wasting air. Right. Okay. So, which, which I guess brings us to, to your topic. It's, mm -hmm. it, it fits in with the climate agenda. It's, it's the plastic ban and, and right. the court decision. I mean, what's your take on that? This was a, uh, a ridiculous policy the Liberals brought in, in the first place. Uh, it was incredibly unpopular. Um, I remember my kids coming home from school, who were obviously not politically engaged, coming back uh, upset that you know Justin Trudeau's taken our straws away, and it was this weird thing. That oh my, I left my phone. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> And it was one of these, uh, just a really bad policy. And Trudeau's legacy, I, I thought when he was going to be done, was going to be his environmental uh, policy. We're seeing they've already watered down their carbon tax with some of the stuff they're removing. And now we're seeing this, the courts overturning the straw. Uh, I just don't see uh, what the legacy is going to be coming from him when this is all said and done. So, you know, my kids have reusable rubber straws and steel straws. I mean, they, they've made that adjustment. I don't know. I mean, uh, it, it, but, but the, the, Fred has a point here, Greg. Uh, it's a bunch of things that emerge from that climate consensus in 2015, 2016, either now watered down, thrown out, or need to be revisited in some ways, and at a time when they're not in the strongest political position to try to salvage it. Yeah, and, and um, it, it's funny, when, when we're pressed, we don't seem, we were very much in favor of the environment. You know, the, 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 um, to paraphrase an old beer ad, those who like it, like it a lot in terms of green initiatives in this government, they have a good voting base there. They've had a good voting base there. But now, you know, post-pandemic, um, all the issues that we have, inflation, all of a sudden people are, are mm -hmm. kind of like pulling back a bit. Um, I'm, I don't want to use single-use plastics. I live in Ottawa. Um, we have uh, twice a week, uh, sorry, um, bi-monthly garbage pickup, mm -hmm. but we have compost weekly and recyclables weekly. And we have a landfill in Ottawa that is near full, and that is going to cost me and other taxpayers here a lot more money. So yes, I compost because I learned how to do it when I was a kid, because we had a garden, but it makes sense that there's less stuff going into that landfill. And I, I heard the leader of the opposition today talk about how, how are we going to keep food fresh? 
crush. And it's a straw man argument or a paper straw man <laughs> argument. I'll, I'll see myself. Has the man ever, ever heard of Tupperware? But uh, again, these, these positions were popular. And I think a lot of people don't have an issue with getting rid of single-use plastics. I wish the government had a better job of this so that the courts were not sending it back to them. Mel, uh, how do you think that, I mean, they're probably going to appeal this. I mean, it's certainly the message from Stephen Gilbo. But there is this, you know, you look at Saskatchewan now threatening to withhold carbon. There is a, there is a fraying of the consensus and, and as the political dynamic has completely shifted in the country. Yeah, well, especially on this issue of affordability and how um, sometimes we're asking folks to pay a little bit more to help fight the climate crisis. And it's usually those folks who are having a hard time making ends meet. So I think with, with to your point, with the anger or the frustration, this is almost like Oh, well, here's proof that this is making our life harder, um, which is really too bad because this was um, something that uh, the NDP had pushed for for years mm. um, on the single-use plastic. And, and what I found interesting from the, um, the uh, return from the courts was the fact that they were too broad on plastics. So to your point, if they had been maybe more specific on what exactly that looked like in uh, the banning of single-use plastics, maybe we, we wouldn't be here. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. And if there's still a path um, to, to reduce single-use plastics uh, to, to really help our, uh, our environment. Okay, we've got about three minutes left. I do want to go back to the fall economic statement. I want, Fred, I want to pick up on your point about how they, they throw out their budgets and then they throw out their budgets. Mm-hmm. You know, people stop talking about it very quickly. I think this budget this year was a little bit different because they had the response to the Inflation Reduction Act and we're seeing that with Volkswagen and, you know, the battery deals and all these sorts of things. But you're right that it's – and, and liberals have complained about this because my sense has always been they're always about a billion things rather than one or right. two or three right. things. Tuesday, if it's more heavily on housing and fixing finances, could that be something we are talking about next Friday? It could be if they have a theme that we keep talking about yeah. and if all of their MPs and spinners and all are out there saying the same story and telling the same story. The last time the Conservatives were really functioning well where we won an election was in 2011. We had Canada's economic action plan from 2008 to 2011. It's the only thing we said. We kept talking about that. Every statement we made was to drive that home. Every single announcement had some element of the Canada's economic action plan. And that's what the Liberals desperately need if they want to get back on track. So, so Greg, I, I mean, you think we'll see that on Tuesday? Susan Delacourt was on the show earlier talking about how, you know, to, to deliver on some of the things the NDP wants, maybe their credit rating is in jeopardy here, right? It's problematic. So maybe it forces them to be focused uh, and, and more disciplined. Yeah, and I just had a flashback to the economic action plan. You know, those, those <laughs> big checks that we all made fun of, well, you know, the, the, the carbon price rebates go in people's accounts and they don't know that they're there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm starting to rethink those giant checks. Novelty <laughs> yeah. um, checks have survived, survived for a long time for a yeah. reason, you know. Paul Martin changed the way budgets were delivered, and they were communicated really, really strongly. And that has kind of set an expectation. And during the conservative years, I remember when there was a budget that wasn't, didn't have a lot really in it, but um, Jim Flaherty got rid of the penny. I called it a literal shiny object of dis- distraction because people talked about that aspect of it. But they've never been, this government has never, ever been able to use the budget, for example, as a good communications tool. Um, yeah. But again, coming out of London, the caucus, this was the thing that they were supposed to stay focused on, on housing and not get distracted. And we'll see if that happens on Tuesday. Mel, they do seem aware of that deficiency uh, since the summer caucus and all the frank conversations. Christopher Freeland's far more visible uh, as finance minister domestically uh, than she's been. Uh, I, I mean, what, what do you expect? Do you expect to see a sharper, more tightly focused uh, message on Tuesday? 
I think the runway is getting shorter and shorter for them not to. So I don't really think mm. that they have a choice um, not to come out and be sharp. And again, um, talk about things that people want to hear or, or people are looking to get addressed. So I think that'll be super important. Um, and the discipline aspect, I, I, I think, is a really good point. Um, as we, you know, as we work towards elections, when you put out a platform, there's always a million and one things in there. But what's important is that you continue to talk about the one thing so people know really what yeah. you are putting on the table in the next election. And I think in the runway to the next election, it'll be important for the Liberals to figure out what that one thing is and have a good solution to it. Um, and, and hopefully they can, well, hopefully for them, they yeah. start uh, doing that on Tuesday. Yeah, and and, uh, and we, we've got to say goodbye, but there's things they can seize on that they don't, right? Like TD yeah. Bank put out some data on housing. We're 20% above pre-pandemic levels in housing starts. Right. Why am I hearing that from the bank and not mm. from the government? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? All right. I want to thank uh, Melanie Richet, Fred Delory, and Greg McEachern. They're going to be joining us uh, on Tuesday as we cover the fall economic statement. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.